The great reformer Martin Luther once said that all of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. Meaning, the Christian is the one who constantly and vigilantly ensures that sin and sinful conduct find no quarter, find no home, and find no rest in our lives. And for the most part, those who claim to love and serve Jesus, we get that, right? We understand this. We should be looking to eliminate sin and sinful conduct and sinful dispositions from our life. And so we strive to do that in most areas. However, there is one particular area that has cropped up over and over and over again in my almost two decades of pastoral ministry that is the single most justified and defended sin in a person's life. There is one sin that stands out as more consistently clung to. One sin that most, most stands out as that which is unrepented of. One sin that tends to be fed into, held onto, and even defended, even in the face of repeated biblical exhortations and repeated exhortations to biblical faithfulness. Now, what's that sin, you ask? It is the sin of anger, bitterness, hostility, and unforgiveness. And all of its repercussions and corollaries. Like that of personal revenge and retaliation. This is a most wicked and most filthy sin. And it necessarily works itself out in varying degrees in our lives against those who have committed wrongs against us and we hold on to them, whether those wrongs are real, whether they're imagined, whether they're perceived, it necessarily always works itself out in us if we hold on to those sins, if we hold on to that bitterness, if we hold on to that hostility, it always works itself out in vengeful and retaliatory ways against the one that we are angry with. And I'm so consistently surprised, and you know what, maybe I shouldn't be, but I am consistently surprised at the tenacity with which people clutch at their bitterness as though it were a string of pearls or a mountain of gold that they need to hoard. I'm consistently surprised and shocked by the lengths to which people will go to exonerate themselves as they hold on to such hostility against another person. It's like, if you've read The Hobbit, it's like Dragon Fever. You remember Dragon Fever? When Thorin finally gets himself that big pile of gold and the dragon is killed. And that gold drives him mad. And it causes all of his rational faculties, his logical faculties, his empathy with other human beings to completely disappear. This is what anger and hostility and bitterness does to us. And such spite and such holding on to hostility with another person will always, and again, I'll say it again, 
always, and don't fool yourself here, it will always work itself out against those with whom you hold that bitterness. It will always work itself out in acts of revenge. And that revenge can be either overt, you can actually commit deeds of violence against them, or you can subtly seek to sabotage them. You can subtly subtly seek to sabotage them by slandering them or by gossiping them about them or by clawing at their reputation in the eyes of others or revenge can manifest itself in even more passive ways as you pull away from or you ignore or you avoid or you subtly respond to the object of your hostility in passive aggressive ways all of these are retaliations all of them And so I'm always surprised by people's commitment to maintaining and grasping at their vengeful attitudes toward another person. And mark this clearly. When you are angry, when you are bitter, when you are unforgiving of another person, even the very act of holding on to those things is an act of revenge against that person. Simply holding on to anger is an act of revenge, an act of appeasing your own flesh because doesn't it feel good to your flesh to maintain anger against someone who has wronged you? I'm always surprised by the cunning and the crafty ways that we can see the clear commands of Jesus Christ to both forgive and repay evil deeds done against us with deeds of kindness with outright refusal. And I guess it would make sense, right? When you survey the world that we live in, personal revenge for wrongs committed against us, standing up for your rights and taking down those who somehow, some way inflict wrongs upon you is one of the most respected traits in our world. In fact, we lionize those who speak in such ways. Muhammad Ali, for example, never thought I'd quote him in a sermon, but here we are. (laughs) Muhammad Ali, for example, once declared, I am a fighter. I believe in the eye for an eye business. I'm no cheek turner. I got no respect for a man who won't hit back You kill my dog, you'd better hide your cat. And it's not simply Muhammad Ali, but personal revenge, think about it, personal revenge forms the central plot line for more books and movies than you could probably count. And more often than not, have you noticed, has this ever risen up in you that you, even though you ought to know better and I ought to know better, find ourselves when we are reading these books and when we are watching these movies, we start to find ourselves cheering for the one who is seeking personal revenge. And we experience a degree of satisfaction when they finally mete out that revenge against the one who has harmed them. If you want a prime example of this in the most benign and innocent of movies, Look no further than the well-beloved Princess Bride. Everybody remember that movie? If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. But even in this, one of the most family-friendly of movies, Personal Vengeance is a chief plot thread. One of the primary characters, and you already know his name, don't you? 
One of the primary characters is a man named Inigo Montoya. And he burned with vengeful fury against the man who had murdered his father. And Montoya dedicated his entire life to pursuing and exacting revenge against the man with six fingers on which hand? Is it his right or his left? His right? Nobody. (laughs) On one of the hands, the guy had six fingers. That was the distinctive characteristic that was remembered by Montoya. And his whole life was devoted to avenging his father's slaughter. And Montoya, if you recall, even went so far as to rehearse over and over and over again the line that he would utter if he ever came into contact with the man who had committed the foul deed of assassinating his father. And you remember the name, or remember the line? Hello? My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And how many of us, when watching that movie, find ourselves clapping for an ego? Find ourselves experiencing a sense of relief and satisfaction when, and here's a spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, you can plug your ears. When Inigo finally finds the six-fingered culprit and repeats over and over again, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And thrusts the man through with his sword. How many of us didn't feel a sense of relief and satisfaction at this act of personal vengeance? I know it's a corny reference. But it just goes to show how ingrained this idea of personal revenge is when we can actually find ourselves hoping for and cheering for and clapping for Inigo as he sought, as he exacted the revenge that he had sought for so long. And when this idea is reiterated to us over again and over again and over again in our media consumption, it's quite easy to lose sight of this truth which has been given to us from the lips of our Lord, personal revenge in any form is unacceptable for the true believer. Personal revenge in any form is unacceptable for the true Christian. And this switch from personal revenge as our response to those who hurt us or who wrong us to responding to those who hurt us and, and harm us with kindness and good is another example of the qualitative difference between the true follower of Christ, the true citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and the righteousness that had been exhibited by the scribes and the Pharisees. The desire for personal revenge has a long track record in Scripture. In fact, one of the very first sins recorded in Scripture... And it very quickly moved from, from that on is that of Cain's murder of his brother. Cain was an unrepentant man who sought vengeance against his brother for a deed that he perceived to be a slight against him. And over time, that unrepentance, as it tends to do, moved to a defiant boasting of of revenge in Cain's great 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 grandson Lamech. You remember Cain, right? We talked about him a few weeks ago. The son of our first parents, Adam and Eve. 
He had a brother named Abel. And one day, both of them brought offerings to the Lord. Abel brought an offering of the firstborn of his flocks along with their fat portions. And Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first fruits of the ground or an offering of the fruit of the ground. Both of them are legitimate offerings. Both of them are good offerings. But the difference between Cain's offering and Abel's offering, according to Hebrews 11.4, is that Abel offered his in faith while Cain did not. And Abel's faith led to the Lord's regard or acceptance of Abel's offering, while Cain's lack of faith led to the Lord's disregard for Cain's offering. And this angered Cain. Why am I not getting the credit I deserve for the offering that I just brought? I gave of the fruits of my hard work. Why is Abel getting all the credit and I'm getting none? Why is Abel the one that gets the Lord's attention? And Cain's anger must have been obvious. It must have been open for everyone to see. Because the text tells us that Cain's, when the Lord had no regard for Cain's offering, Cain's face fell. You remember that in Genesis 4, verses 6 to 7? The Lord sought to comfort Cain, saying, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And as most of you know, Cain could not control his anger. His anger was not ruled over, but instead, in his anger, he avenged what he considered a wrong committed against him by his brother. But the thing is, Abel didn't really do anything to Cain, did he? But Cain saw Abel's actions as a personal affront and sought personal revenge. And then Cain killed Abel. And Cain never actually repented of his wicked deeds, but he wasn't defiant about them. But it wasn't much longer as you walk through the the narrative of Genesis and watch the descent of humankind, it wasn't much longer before humanity's descent from that moment to uh, that of Cain's great-great-great-grandson Lamech turned from unrepentance to outright defiance. Lamech revealed the depths of depravity ever present in the human heart. It was Lamech, we see him in Genesis 4, 23 and 24, it was Lamech who first defiantly broke with the tradition of monogamous marriage in Scripture. He is the first one to take for himself two wives, Ada and Zillah. And it was to these wives that Lamech said in Genesis 4, 23 and 24, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me. And if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. You see, at some point, someone came up to Lamech and either attacked him or insulted him, and Lamech in turn responded by striking that man down. And without an ounce of remorse, he came home, he gathered up his wives before him and started gloating to them and reveling to them in his vengeful, murderous actions, even going so far as to turn it into a poem. 
But not only did Lamech furiously kill this man who attacked or wronged him, Lamech boasts about, if you look at the text in 423 to 24, he boasts about his, atten- his intention to address with force any difficulty and mistreatment that comes his way. Lamech will go even further than Cain to avenge the wrongs that he com- feels that have been committed against him. If Cain's vengeance was sevenfold, Lamech's will be 77-fold, meaning Lamech will take the law into his own hands and vindictively over-avenge himself on those who wrong him. You insult Lamech, he will strike you through with the sword. Cain's sevenfold retribution is Lamech's way of describing Cain's vengeance on Abel and Lamech's 77-fold is a description of his intent to escalating his vengeance against those who harm or wrong him. So you see, Genesis reveals this rapidly deteriorating human condition. Lamech, unlike Cain, holds up revenge as a badge of honor. Not even Cain did that. Lamech, in only a few short generations, reveled in rested in and was proud of his commitment to hurting those who hurt him. Listen, it is no coincidence that when Peter went up to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? It's not a coincidence that in Matthew 18, 22, Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. It's a reminder of the hard-hearted boastfulness of Lamech. It's a call to resist the spirit of Lamech, to resist that vengeful impulse of Lamech that is present in every single one of us. That impulse that can so easily be inflamed in every single one of us. And so as humanity descended from sevenfold vengeance to 77-fold vengeance. Here comes the law of the Lord given to the people of Israel through Moses. And at Sinai, the Lord put restraints on, all, on this all-too-human condition of avenging ourselves. And it is this command that Jesus addresses in our text this morning. The true follower of Christ, the true kingdom citizen, does not will not, refuses to seek personal revenge against those who wrong us. Instead, we repay evil with good. This truly reveals the different quality of righteousness that is required, doesn't it? This truly reveals the different quality of righteousness between a kingdom citizen and the scribes and the Pharisees, doesn't it? And the scribes and Pharisees would, took these laws, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and they interpreted them for their generations. And this one, they got dreadfully and absolutely wrong. Just like they had done with the command not to murder. Just like they had done with the command about adultery. Just like they had done with the command about divorce and not taking the, names, the Lord's name in vain and being dishonest. Here, once again, Jesus must clear up the misrepresentations of the law's intentions that the scribes and Pharisees so completely obscured. And so he began in this section, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
Now, just uh, as a, a reminder, when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, he's not referring to the teaching of the Old Testament as though he were in some way about to correct the Old Testament. No, the Old Testament is God's word and therefore needs no correction. It is God's perfect word and needs no addressing or updating. Instead, what he refers to here is the teachings of the rabbis on the subject. You see, the phrase, the rabbis took what the Old Testament said, misrepresented it, mis, or, or obscured it, and ensured that nobody actually knew what that law was speaking of. But this phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is drawn from three texts in the Old Testament. So let's take a look at those three texts so that we can figure out what is happening. The first one is Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 25. Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 25. And it says this. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. As the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Now remember that. That phrase about the judges is important to the context of these verses. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The second text is Leviticus chapter 24, verses 19 to 20. Leviticus chapter 24, verses 19 and 20. It says this. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. And the third place is in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19 verses 15 to 21. Deuteronomy chapter 19 verses 15 to 21. And it says this. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with an offense, an offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. Again, there's that phrase, the judges. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So a couple of observations to note about all of these texts. First, these laws were not given, as the Pharisees said, any sort of command to personal vengeance. They were not given as a command to seek out and take the eyes of anyone who took yours. These laws were given as a restraint against excesses in the dispensation of justice. They were given as a restraint uh, to the spirit of Lamech that can arise in a person who is bent on vengeance. 
If the people had the same outlook as Lamech, instead of taking one eye, they wouldn't stop there. They would take both of your eyes and then take the eyes of your children as well because vengeance has a way of making us absolute fools. This is human nature to exact exact an even greater price from those who wrong us. And so these laws were in in effect given to control and rein in that tendency to avenge 77-fold, to rein in violence and vengeance, to keep us from punching others harder and more often than they punched us, to keep sin in check and mandate that the punishment fit the crime, not go beyond it. And second, I want you to notice something else about these texts. They did not deal with the exacting of personal revenge against another person. The Old Testament nowhere gives anyone permission to exact personal revenge. When God gave this law, the purpose was to limit the amount of revenge that could be taken against another, but it also limited the location from which that judgment against the one who wronged you was pronounced. Did you notice it? It was limited to the court of law. Did you see it? There's a reason why we, I stressed the word judges in there. These laws took revenge actually out of the hands of the individual and placed punishments for for a crime in the hands of judges, magistrates, and authorities in Israel. Only the civic authorities were given the power to pronounce judgment upon a lawbreaker. Only the civic authorities could set out the punishments for one who had inflicted harm upon another. And the max penalty that these justices could deliver or that they could dole out uh, was the amount of injury that the person had inflicted against the other person. And no more. This law was given in order to discourage the seeking of private personal vengeance not to encourage it. But the scribes and the Pharisees completely misrepresented this law by turning it into not a restraint, but a positive command to seek out and avenge yourselves against those who did wrong to you. The people and the rabbis seized on this law as a pretext and a justification for personal revenge. These laws originally were put into the hands of magistrates and judges in Israel, but the rabbis instead turned them into commands or at least permissions for personal vengeance. And they would insist upon these texts when they felt the need to exact revenge against somebody else. They took a law of restraint and turned it into a law of insistence. And as long as they didn't initiate the wrong... They felt in their own minds completely justified in returning injury to their neighbor. It's kind of like, you know, the schoolyard fist fight. And the two kids are doing this, and the one's like, you hit me first. No, you hit me first. No, you hit me first. No, you hit me first. Because the one who is second or the one who retaliates always feels like they're in a better and more righteous position than the one who initiates, right? Similar idea. If they didn't initiate the wrong, but they were punched at, then they could respond without guilt. And so here, 
Christ, once again, clears up a rabbinical obscuring of God's word and sets out in the clearest and the plainest of language the responsibility of the kingdom citizen in this realm of personal vengeance. Now, just as a side note, many people have taken this text and used it to create some sort of new system of justice. This text, while many have used it to promote things like pacifism or um, those types of things, it's not referring to governments and their responsibility to bear the sword. Okay? This is specifically referring to personal vengeance. It's not referring to whether a Christian can serve in the military or serve on the police force, and those who read such things into this text actually misrepresent the intention of the text. The intention of this text is to take the sword of personal revenge out of the Christian's hand and to promote the responsibility and duty of the kingdom citizen to bear up patiently and graciously under any wrongdoing that has been committed against them while returning to the wrongdoer good and not evil. So Jesus here completely dismantled the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees and he will go on to, to give us an ex, a series of extraordinarily difficult situations in which grace, forgiveness, and restraint characterize the victim. Beginning with, in 539, look at that phrase, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, don't read into that statement and think that the kingdom citizens, kingdom citizens do not resist evil or the evil one. We do. We are called in many ways all throughout the New Testament to resist and oppose evil with all of our strength, right? We read that in Romans 12, 9. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. We read that in 1 Thessalonians 5. Abstain from every form of evil. And we also are called to resist the devil, as James 4 says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What Jesus said, when Jesus said, do not resist the one who is evil in this context, what he's doing is explicitly forbidding retaliation and revenge in our personal relationships. That is what the word resist here indicates. Do not oppose, do not set yourself against, do not be hostile towards, do not retaliate against in any way, the one who does evil against you. Leave off your fleshly desire to get even. In any way, whether it's active or passive, do not set your face against another in an unloving or unforgiving spirit. We are not to resist. Look again at who is mentioned as the one we are not to resist. The one who is evil. That word there means the worthless degenerate. Meaning, we aren't to personally retaliate or set ourselves against in some sort of hostile way, even the worst of people. How much more then ought we to avoid setting ourselves against each other? Jesus expressly forbids all setting of ourselves against each other in hostility. Jesus forbids all returning of evil for evil. We are never ever permitted to return evil for evil, but are always called to overcome the evil of those who wrong us with good. 
So what the Apostle Paul commanded us in Romans, right? You remember Romans 12, 17. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And then in Romans 12, 21, he says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So instead of repaying other people with evil, we are to turn to Jesus for the strength and the power and the wisdom to deal with our own heart issue. We're to turn to Christ and plead for the strength of the Spirit to help us to deal with the retaliatory impulse that so easily boils up in us. The kingdom citizen whose righteousness is of a different quality than that of the scribes and Pharisees does not act in vengeful ways, but instead displays a radical selflessness in this area. We don't act out of any sort of I, I, give me what I deserve mentality. Because truthfully, you deserve nothing. I deserve nothing. In fact, it goes even further. If the Lord were to grant your wish, give me what I deserve, what do you think that would mean for you? If the Lord granted that wish for any one of you, you would be eternally damned. Because that is what we all deserve. The only reason any of us are saved, any of us are given the hope of eternal life by grace through faith in Christ is because we are given a gift we don't deserve. We don't insist on what we deserve because what we deserve is hell. We plead with the Lord for what we don't deserve, which is grace and mercy. And so we recognize that vengeance is not our domain. It is the Lord's. We give to others what we feel they don't deserve as the Lord gives to us what we don't deserve. And we recognize that it's the Lord who is the only one who can fairly and equitably distribute justice and vengeance because he is the only one who is perfectly righteous. And so we are called not to avenge ourselves but to leave it in his hands and to deny ourselves and follow the example that is given to us by Christ. And what is that example, you might ask? We read it before the service, as the service started this morning. Remember, 1 Peter 2, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And this example of Christ leads Peter later on in this same letter to exhort you and I to imitate Jesus in chapter 3, verse 9, saying, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So Peter makes it clear. That old principle of an eye for an eye was a restraining principle. But the highest calling, the one that we can now live out because the Holy Spirit lives in us, is to leave off the spirit of getting even altogether and to repay those who injure us with good and with blessing. That's a far cry from the scribes and the Pharisees, isn't it? It's a far cry from the plot lines of the movies we watch, isn't it? 
The Pharisees clamored for revenge and glorified revenge. And we are called never to avenge, but to repay evil with good. Now that is a different quality of righteousness. Now I want you to think about your own life. If there are three levels, which one are you operating at this morning? Are you on the bottom level? Someone does something to me, I'm going to get even. Or are you on the next level? If someone hurts me in some way, I won't repay them evil for evil. Or are you on the highest level? If someone wrongs me, I'm going to repay their evil with good. Which level are you on at this moment? Because our goal and our aim is to get to the highest level. And so Jesus will explain and describe what it means to repay evil with good in a series of examples in our text. The first one found in chapter 539. Look at it. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, just think about it. What would be your immediate instinct if someone were to slap you in the face? Probably to hit them back? To smack them down? To shout at them? To let the expletives fly against them? To get some sort of revenge in order to calm the screaming, the screams of our flesh? Jesus commands you to renounce that retaliatory impulse and instinct. And he calls on every one of you and me to fight against the instinct and the impulse to defend our personal honor in that moment. Now, again, this does not mean that we don't stand up for the honor of others. Remember, this is referring to personal revenge, right? In uh, 1 Corinthians 13, one of the, the aspects of love is that love always protects but in terms of our personal honor, we leave off the impulse to defend ourselves and to avenge ourselves for wrongs done to us. Now, the slap that is referred to here is the slap of insult. He says the right cheek, right? And in those days, most people, just like now, are right-handed. So in order to hit the right cheek of the one that's standing in front of you, it's got to be like this. And in these days, at this time, this was a gesture of insult. When insulted, either in the words or with the back of the hand, of the, or with the back of the insulter's hand, the Christian who was filled with the Holy Spirit was called not to concern themselves with repayment. This is means... This means that Christians in general need to develop a thicker skin. You see, the world that we live in, the wisdom and spirit of this age is one of such radical individualism and radical obsession with self and self-esteem and self-importance that we get so angry at the slightest wrong done to us. Jesus called, ourselves, called us to deny ourselves. And when we focus on how worthy we think we are or how consequential we think we are or how significant we think we are or what people owe us, the higher you esteem yourself in your own eyes, the more you will be upset and the more apt you will be to judgment and vengeance against the grievances that others have committed against you. So listen. 
the most proud people, the most arrogant people, the most self-centered people can be very easily identified. They are the ones who hold on to personal grievances and respond evil with evil. But the humility that characterizes Christ's people gives them the strength to run contrary to that fleshly desire and instead to forgive and move on. Instead of slapping back, you turn the other cheek. Now, this is not a literal command to leave yourself open to another slap. However, if someone does give you another slap, you're called to forgive the offender for that second slap as well. The idea here is that it is an unacceptable response to slap back. And for those who say they love and serve Christ to avenge themselves is to act in a way contradictory to life in the Spirit and acts in a completely contradictory way to the Savior they claim to love and serve. Very, the very, they act in the very opposite way that Jesus himself act. You remember when he was on trial? He could have struck every single participant in that trial dead in a second. But instead allowed them to spit in his face, to strike him, to slap him, all so that he could save them. That's the, hair, the head stuff just fell. All so that he could save them. Talk about returning evil with good. And Jesus continues in verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. The idea here being, if someone were to initiate legal proceedings against you, we are called, or us, we are called to be so patient with, so kind to, so committed to Christ's likeness in these proceedings that if they want your tunic, now the tunic was a long undershirt, one of the clothing staples in the day, and most common folk in this day only had one, maybe two of them. If the plaintiff is calling for your tunic, do not engage in acrimonious, bitter argumentation back and forth. You know, the he said, she said. You simply tell the truth and be prepared to peace of, peacefully give up your coat a layer of clothing that went over the tunic as well. The idea here is this. It is better to be defrauded. It is better to be wronged, even unjustly. It is better to quietly and patiently endure the injustices of others than it is to be resentful, spiteful, and vengeful. Now, just for clarity's sake, again, this does not mean that Christians don't fight for and stand for truth and justice. We do. Again, this is specific to personal revenge. So we are never to act out of any attitude of personal revenge. Now listen, you have no right. I have no right to hate anyone. You and I gave up that right when we turned to Christ. When we came to Christ, we signed up for loving our neighbors and doing good to our enemies. And to do anything other is a complete and total defeat 
for us. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. An example when Paul writes to them about their penchant for suing one another and that bitter, acrimonious, vengeful spirit had been playing out among them, among the, 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 the saints in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, the Apostle Paul wrote this. You can kind of flip over there if you want for a few minutes. We'll be there for a few minutes. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7. Meaning, such a vengeful and spiteful act, such vengeful and spiteful acts between those who should know better, those whose example is Jesus Christ, brings the gospel of Jesus Christ into disrepute. And so Paul, in essence, exhorts them, and by extension, exhorts us as well. Saying, to the Corinthians and by extension to us, if only you were wise and mature enough to simply figure it out between the two of you. If only you were wise enough to simply forgive one another and move forward for the sake of the gospel and the unity of the church. Forget the fact that you are taking your issues to court and have such issues among you. To have such among you is a, to have such divisions among you at all is a complete, total utter, disastrous defeat for you. It's a complete and total loss for you that you can't forgive one another. The church of Christ is supposed to model and to imitate and to display Jesus Christ to the world. You know, the Savior who forgives all who call upon him. But when the world looked at the Corinthian church, they saw the very opposite. They saw the very opposite of what Christ offers to lost sinners. Instead of forgiveness, what, the, what they saw was unforgiveness, pettiness, arguments, vengeance, all of which are directly opposed and contradictory to the foundational wonder of the gospel, that forgiveness is available to the sinner. And that's still the case. A church divided members of a body of Christ that are unwilling to forgive one another, that hold on to their pride and respond out of that anger to another in bitter, vengeful ways, whether actively or passively, act in contradiction to the gospel that we claim to hold dear. We act in ways that are contradictory to the Savior we profess to worship. And like the Corinthians, when you can't, won't, or don't forgive... When you can't move forward together, when the gospel does not inform your relationships, it is an incredible failure on your part. When you hold on to disputes with another believer, you lose. And you cause us to lose as well. And we all, as a body of believers, suffer a tremendous defeat. So my dear brothers and sisters, every single one of us, every single one of us has responded at times to those who wrong us in ways that are reminiscent of the Corinthians, right? We've all done it. We've all responded at some time or other in a spirit of vengeance, in, an, in a spirit of getting even, of spite, of a desire to harm them in some way. While we might not take each other to court, we have leveled our own personal judgments against others and executed what we believe to be the appropriate sentence, right? In essence, we have said, I'm going to take that eye, 
for the eye you took from me. Perhaps you're upset with someone and your disposition towards them right now is one of overt or passive aggression. To have such a disposition towards another person, to rest in that posture is a defeat for you, it is a defeat for them, it is a defeat for us. Perhaps you've sentenced another believer to your gossip about them, to your slander of their name. You're tearing them down in the minds and in the hearts of other brothers and sisters. Such an act toward another believer, guess what? It's a defeat for you. It is a defeat for them. It is a defeat for us. Perhaps you've even tried to sabotage them financially, relationally, maybe in their reputation. Perhaps you have cut off all communication. Perhaps you are right now avoiding their presence. You don't enter rooms you know they're going to be in. Perhaps you make sure that they know you don't like them or that you hold on to some dispute against them. Whatever it is, we could name a thousand ways in which we all maintain unforgiveness and act out of personal vengeance. And all of these, all of them are a defeat for you, a defeat for us, a defeat for them, and a defeat for us. Do we really think this is what we as believers in Christ have been called to? We've been called to something so much higher, so much more wonderful, the imitation of our Savior. Our Savior, who took on flesh, who lived a perfect life, who suffered a brutal death at the hands of sinful men, so that all who believe in Him might be forgiven of their sins that they've committed against Him. That we might be forgiven of the sins that we have committed against the Father in heaven. Christ, our, our model, never slandered anyone. Christ, our model, never exhibited any passive, aggressive responses. Christ, our model, never took vengeance on anyone. He is our relational model. He is the one that the outside world should see when they look at us. He is the one they should see when they explore our relationships with one another. And what's more, the Bible declares us, all of us here, believers, to be a family. During his ministry, Jesus modeled how close our ties are with those who love him. Listen, Matthew 12, verse 46 to 50. Matthew writes, While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mothers and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The idea is we are a family. You are my brothers, you are my sisters, you are my mothers, and the same goes for each and every one of you with everyone else. You are each other's family. Our bonds in Christ are stronger and tighter with the brother who loves the Lord and isn't related by blood than the brother who is related by blood but doesn't love the Lord. So like any healthy family, we ought not to contend with one another but to be diligent in our relationships, keeping short accounts, forgiving one another and refusing to retaliate. Instead, look at what Paul said next in 1 Corinthians 6. He said in verse 7, Why not rather suffer wrong? 
Why not rather be defrauded? Now, what a tremendously difficult call to a believer. You who were wronged, Paul says to you this morning, why not simply suffer the wrong? Now, you might be responding right now. Yeah, right. Do you know what they did to me? Do you know the wrong that some, this person committed against me? No, I don't. What was it? Did they treat you unjustly? Did they take money from you? Did they rob you of your possessions? Did they slander your name? Did they cause you... What did they do that could ever bring you to the point where you could say, I'm going to disobey the call and command of my Lord and instead seek to repay that person evil for evil? What could ever convince you that that's legitimate? What did they do that could bring you to the place where you convince yourself that you are not bound by the command to overcome evil with good? The fact is, whatever they did, whatever they said, all of us are commanded every time to overcome their evil with good, even if it means personal loss. This is what Paul is saying. Why not rather just suffer the wrong? And suffer wrong here in this context means to be deprived of your rights. Why not just rather accept unjust treatment, give up your rights in this situation for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ's reputation and the reputation of his church in the world? See, the proper response of the believer is rather than pursuing a vengeance against the wrongdoer to the detriment of the church in the eyes of the unbelieving world, it is to accept the wrong live with it rather than repay it or sue a fellow believer and go even further, repay their evil deeds with good deeds and blessings. Even if we were in the right, even if we lose a little bit of money or a little bit of reputation, it is better to lose our worldly goods than to disobey the Lord by seeking vengeance against another person. For the Christian, it is better to lose out and accept it than to sue in personal retaliation and regain what we lost. And Paul continues, he asks another question. Why not rather be defrauded? Be defrauded here means suffer the loss, whether through robbery, fraud, or being cheated out of what is rightfully yours. Now, this is difficult. Again, is this not a different quality of righteousness, one that is impossible for you and impossible for me on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to live out this type of life. By enduring unjust injuries and responding with good, do you know who it is that you imitate? Who it is that you model to the world? Jesus. Jesus relinquished his rights when he went to the cross. The Apostle Paul made this clear elsewhere in the New Testament when he was writing to the Philippians who were themselves dealing with arguments and unforgiveness in their midst. He counseled them with these words in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on 
a cross. When we endure the wrong and forgive and seek to bless the wrongdoer rather than repay and avenge, we emulate Jesus Christ. We emulate and imitate our Savior. Just quickly, Jesus continued again in verse 41 with another insanely difficult scenario. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now this is difficult for a Jew because the Jews absolutely hated their Roman overlords with a bitter and hostile hatred. And there even arose among the Jews a group called the Zealots. And Jesus chose one of these Zealots to be one of his 12 disciples. Now the Zealots were a group that went around fomenting rebellion everywhere they went fomenting rebellion and revolution against the Romans and they would hide in crowds and search for Roman soldiers and they'd keep knives in their cloaks and when they would pass by the Roman soldiers, they'd stab them and then run away. That's how much they hated Roman soldiers. And it's also one of the reasons that they hated tax collectors so much because when a Jewish tax collector worked for the Romans, what they were doing was extracting money from Jewish peoples in order to support the Roman army that kept the Jewish peoples in subjection. And it's these same Roman overlords, these bitterly hated soldiers that were given authority by Rome to press citizens into service More specifically, the service of carrying a soldier's load for one mile without compensation. And for a Roman soldier to say to a Jew, you, grab my things, walk with me for a mile, was the epitome of insults for a Jewish person. It was a reminder to them of Rome's robbery of Jewish liberty. And once again, Jesus speaks in terms that are impossible for those who do not have the Spirit of God in them. If treated unjustly, do not respond in kind. Instead, go above and beyond in overcoming their evil with good. Instead of bitterness, instead of revealing and acting out of that bitter spirit toward those who burden you or who wrong you, respond with a smile. You need me to go one mile? How about I go two? When robbed of some liberty, we do better to surrender that right or liberty than to seek personal vengeance or retaliation against the one who took that liberty from us or who wronged us. Never was a Roman soldier more despised by a Jew than when that Roman soldier commandeered him to service. And yet, even in this, Jesus prohibits vengeance and retaliation and calls for a response of good. Truly, personal revenge has no place in the life of a Christian. So let me close by quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones, the good doctor, commenting on this text as an exhortation to you and to me. It says, Whenever I notice in myself a reaction of self-defense or a sense of annoyance or a grievance or a feeling that I have been hurt and wronged and am suffering an injustice. The moment I feel this defensive mechanism coming into play, I must quietly face myself and ask the following questions. Why exactly does this thing upset me? Why am I grieved by it? What is my real concern at this point? 
Am I really concerned for some general principle of justice and righteousness? Am I really moved and disturbed because I have some true cause at my heart? Or let me face it honestly, is it just myself? Is it just this horrible, foul, self-centeredness and self-concern? This morbid condition into which I have got. Is it nothing but an unhealthy and unpleasant pride? Such self-examination is essential if we are to conquer in this matter. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. We ask, Lord, that as we've been walking through these texts, as we've been looking at the words of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, as he preached on this day, we recognize that we need your Holy Spirit because we can't do this on our own. We can all live the type of righteousness that the scribes and Pharisees lived. We can all bend and shape the words to fit us and to fit our lives and to fit our choices anytime we want. But to see our Lord reveal to us the true intentions of your word reveals to us that we are falling immeasurably short of it. We cannot on our own live this quality of life. We cannot on our own live this quality of righteousness. And so all of us in unison and in unity and in harmony right now ask for extra measures of your Holy Spirit to lead us into this quality of righteousness. Remove from us any retaliatory impulse. Remove from us unforgiveness. Remove from us any sense of personally being, seeking personal vengeance. Let us honor you by being people who are known in this world who do not repay evil for evil, but who instead repay evil with good. And we thank you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.